tonight marks 15 years since George Harrison died at his home in LA after a battle with lung cancer. It was quite a morning, uh, 29th of November 2001, because we found out, I think, within the space of a couple of hours that both uh, George Harrison and Mick Christopher had left us. And I'm uh, joined on the line now by music journalist Graham Thompson, who's the author of George Harrison Behind the Locked Door, which will be released in paperback next month. Uh, you're an old hand at this thing, uh, uh, Graham. Very welcome back to the show. Hey, Richie. Uh, very nice to be here. Thank, uh, you. thank you so much for taking time out this evening to speak to us. Um, let's put one thing to bed right here and now. George Harrison wasn't the quiet beetle at all, was he? He certainly was not. <laughs> no, no, he talked and he, he was a very opinionated man. And he was, uh, yeah, the legend goes right back to the, the first Beatles tour, actually, of the United States when he had a throat infection. And he was laid up in bed in a hotel and he didn't, he didn't say very much. Uh, so it was written up as he was the quiet one. He was under uh, doctor's orders, I believe, to keep quiet. He was, yeah. I mean, he, barely, he, he could hardly play and, and he couldn't speak. So he was under <laughs> doctor's orders um, to put up and shut up. And, and so this myth kind of developed as this uh, very quiet, reticent guy, which he wasn't at all. Uh, I mean, he wasn't, I suppose he wasn't naturally inclined to the limelight, but he certainly could talk. And, and the, uh, he had very, very forthright opinions. Well, in a way, that quiet beetle tag almost suited him because it allowed him to I guess hide behind this kind of shrouds that people just accepted that he was the quiet unassuming maybe you know uh, a little bit uh, not dull but you know he was he was hmm. keeping himself to himself kind of life uh, whereas in actual fact he was living like a demon he was well there was always this dichotomy and this kind of uh, contradiction between the, the spiritual life and the rock and roll life which I think is fascinating and it was one of the things I wanted to to explore when I wrote the book, and he was, you know, he was in many ways he was just a guitar player. You know, he 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 would have been happy just being the guitar player, um, in a, in a kind of middling rock band. I think that, I mean that fulfilled a lot of his ambitions. The quiet one, I think, that kind of reputation probably didn't do him any favours when he wanted to start being more assertive in yeah. the band and wanted to start presenting his songs. And uh, I, I don't think that helped because he, he was always feeling that he was struggling, and he was kind of he was the youngest one as well, so he was a sort of junior member of the band, and that that worked against him creatively, I think. But he wasn't he didn't he wasn't pushy in the sense that he wanted to be the lead singer and he wanted to have all the limelight. He was quite happy being, you know. But third, back on the left and playing guitar and kind of keeping out of the the way in many ways. It, it always strikes me about the Beatles because the people, I guess, it's very easy to take them for granted, but people kind of forget the furrow that they ploughed for themselves. We think of bands now as bands that release their own songs, write their own songs, maybe have a songwriter or a songwriter team heading them up. That didn't really happen up until this point. Obviously, they had uh, fairly covers-laden albums in their first three or four records. Yeah. But beyond that, they're a very self-sufficient band. And to have this, uh, I suppose, focus on each of them as being songwriters in their own rights in different ways, even Ringo had it, I guess, as well, was a very, very unique and a very new thing for a musician to be dealing with. They were. I mean, they were they were literally inventing it as they went along. I mean, they were inventing that template of the, the four-piece rock and roll band who... Who all wrote? Who all played? Who all sang? You know, I mean, they, they all they all sang a song on the, on the records as well, um, and that yeah, as you say, that didn't exist before, and and not just the fact that they did that, but the way that they they evolved that art yeah. so quickly. I mean, I mean, it's so compressed. Writing the book, it, it, it was still quite astonishing at what they achieved and what they went through within six or seven years, which was the the span of that record. Um, you know, I, I later wrote a book about Kate Bush, who doesn't release an album in, in the space of twelve years. You know, so everything happened so quickly, and and they were they were learning it as they as they went along, and um, thrust into this incredible tornado of of experience that they went through, and uh, you know the amount of scrutiny that they had, and. I think George was probably the least well-equipped to deal with that side of it, you know, the screaming fans and the, the police chases and getting out of airports. And, uh, you know, I think that frayed his nerves. But, but yeah, I mean, they, they were, 
it's easy, as you say, it's easy to kind of underestimate the Beatles or to take them for granted. What they did was still astonishing, and and what they achieved and what, how they evolved the art of rock music and pop music within that very short space of time is still pretty amazing. George was a guy who grew up, I suppose, just in the immediate aftermath of, of post-war Britain, and he's then cast into this world of instant fame, everybody in the world, and even in the days, if we can imagine such a thing before the days of social media, everybody knew who you were. Hmm. Um, that, as a kind of humble, local, Liverpudlian lad, is an absolute mind melt to try and deal with. Yeah, and he was, you know, him and Ringo were the proper working class boys in the Beatles. You know, John and Paul were, you know, at least aspiring to middle class and had those kind of arty aspirations, which which George didn't have. You know, he was a very much a traditional working class boy. And, you know, and, and when they became famous uh, originally, you know, there would be kids outside his house, you know, his little terrace house in Liverpool. His mum would let them in. His mum would let them into his bedroom when he was away. They would look at his clothes Incredible innocence to that, I think. Um, you know, he wasn't one for the airs and graces. But the other side of it is, of course, the way people treat you, the way the way that people treat you changes so much when you become famous. And I think he struggled with that because he was, in, to many intense purposes, just a really down-to-earth, working-class kid, you know, a, a very acerbic, yeah. droll sense of humor. And yet, of course, on the other side of it, he had this great need for expanding his knowledge and expanding the possibilities of what it was to be alive. And that's a really fascinating contradiction, I think. That that kind of uh, search for meaning, etc., etc., mm. obviously led him to the Eastern mysticism kind of thing and led him to trips to India. Like, I'm kind of curious, is that something that he knew about before getting involved in or is it something that was uh, necessarily thrust upon him but, you know, he, he decided that this is going to be the way of life for me. This is going to be the way of thinking that's going to suit my needs best. I think, yeah, I think the latter because... Well, he always said, that, you know, he heard the he heard the sitar, and it, and it just it was like a bell going off. So, something about the sound of that instrument um, seemed to open doors in his mind about the possibilities. And then he you know, very quickly he 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 met Ravi Shankar, um, and this was at the peak of the Beatles fame. This was you know 1966 when they just decided to stop touring, and the peak of that madness and the uh, the Bible Belt stuff and the bigger than Jesus stuff and all that furore that happened uh, in the States at that time. So I think he was probably looking for something that made sense as an uh, you know, alternative to all that madness. And this uh, this sense of peace and inner searching came at the right time. But there was something, you know, he, he claimed he was reincarnated. He always felt that it was something that was latent in him from the very beginning. Um, and so the, these people that he, you know, Ravi Shankar invited him over to India. He went over there. Uh, he went up to Rishikesh and up in the Himalayas and, and uh, you know, that seemed to be the start of a whole new life for him, really. You know, there was something about that way of life that just chimed with him, and, and he never really looked back in many ways. And I think that, for him, that was probably the end of the Beatles. You know, 66, yeah. late 66, early 67, um, his interest in that waned significantly, and he was almost like a kind of part-time member from that moment on. His, his head was really elsewhere. There's still, I guess, um, human impulses behind the man himself, even though there are these spiritual leanings. And they are kind of borne out in his, I suppose, his appetite for drugs, his appetite for drink as well, which we kind of look at in the 70s and you look, yeah. at, look at in the book as well. That's something that, I don't know, it, was, was that a case where he's trying to balance the working class lads who's from Liverpool but is involved in kind of Eastern mysticism and Indian music and all this kind of life was he still trying to was was that an anchor for him to, to a previous life do you think? Yeah I mean I don't think you know I don't think he ever felt that those things were contradictory I think he, he recognised that he was a flawed human being and he had appetites for as you say drink and uh, during periods of his life for drugs and certainly for women mm. um, 
Uh, and yet, and that didn't necessarily go against the grain of trying to make himself a better person. I think it was always just this this search to try and find something else that that, that made sense. But it didn't mean that he was going to, you know, meditate or for 20 years ago and live on top of a mountain and kind of retreat from the world. And he did those things occasionally, but it was never going to be enough for him. And he was quite unapologetic about that in many ways. I like I liked that about him, actually. He wasn't, you know, he could be very pious about his religious beliefs, but he wasn't sort of po-faced about them, you know, yeah. and he did he did retain that sense of, well, I'm a flesh and blood human being, and, um, you know, that's the way I'm going to live my life, and you can either take it or leave it. And, and he was, it was difficult for people to be around, certainly, I spoke to Patty Boyd, who was his wife, uh, you know, in the 60s and early 70s, and she found it very hard because it was one thing or the other. You know, it was either living on rice and beans and, and not, you know, not talking to anyone and reading, you know, ancient religious texts, or it was full-blown hedonism, and, and she didn't really get a look in. You know, so it was very extreme behavior. And, um, but he never, I don't think he ever kind of made an apology for either of those things. That's just who he was. Yeah, he's a remarkable case study. We had a text in from Eva saying she saw a documentary that George had a serious collection of cars and associated the Zen of racing with his interest in meditation. This is this is 100%. He had a huge interest in Formula One. It was going back to, I think the British Grand Prix, Grand Prix would have been at Aintree, which obviously is on his doorstep at Liverpool. So yeah. it goes back to the kind of those days, and he, he, he kind of ruminated on that for years. Yeah, he went there when he, that's right. I mean, there was a fascination from right back. And I think it's also that working class thing about, you know, how do you kind of mark the moment when you suddenly have a bit of cash in your pocket? And, you know, and the car is a status car, symbol. Yeah, yeah it was, was a re- really kind of classic thing. So he always clung on to that. And it was a great story. I mean, there's a story when uh, George, George Martin, of course, the Beatles producer, uh, after the Beatles split up, and he was unwell. And George had bought this new, extraordinarily expensive and extremely uh, fast um, sports car that he motored around to see George Martin and and he brought him this little wooden box and, and he kind of solemnly declared that you know uh, the importance of life lies in the simple things George you know and he passed this box on to him and then he he roared off at 120 miles an hour in his 500,000 pound car you know and that's the contradiction there in a nutshell you know it's it's this the love of speed and and status symbols and all these things and also this this desire to boil life down to very simple meaningful gestures and, and uh, you know that, that kind of sums them up yeah it's it's to be honest with you it's a great book um, Behind the Locked Door but I also wanted to congratulate you on Under the Ivy the, the book about Kate Bush because I never got to speak to you about this before but I loved the book itself thank you uh, Graeme and Obviously, Kate's back in the news. I suppose generally with the new al- with the new yeah, live yeah. album, uh, saw her live performances there a couple of years ago as well. They're utterly fantastic. Mm. Uh, but she's also quoted as uh, praising Theresa May uh, today in the press, which, as you might imagine, has gone down uh, about as well as a Kate Bush rap album might. <laughs> Um, which is kind of interesting. She's praising Theresa May, saying that she thinks she's a very sensible person, etc., etc. And if she wanted uh, somebody to play her in a play, it would be, or in a movie, it would be Johnny Depp. Um, Kate probably shouldn't do interviews all that more often. She's ruining the mystique a little bit, isn't she? Well, it's it's weird because she normally doesn't say anything of any interest at all. (laughs) She's obviously let let the mask slip slightly here. I'm not that surprised. I mean, I'm surprised she said it because, as I say, she doesn't usually come out with these uh, headline-grabbing quotes, but... Mm. It doesn't really surprise me. She and I wrote this in the book. You know, she exists on a a plane, kind of way beyond or below or whatever you want to call it. Any kind of political um, thought, I think. You know, she's there's not much in her career that you could point to and that would suggest she's a a kind of lefty or liberal firebrand. You know, she is quite an old school um, English um, singer songwriter, and I yeah. think a lot of those values. 
uh, are, are kind of what's important to her. But I don't think she's party political. I don't think this was a party political point, really. I think she made a fairly pedestrian and possibly quite banal comment about the personality of somebody who is uh, currently prime minister and perhaps the fact that she's a woman. There's actually there's been a woman visiting uh, Dublin in the last couple of days, uh, the first minister of Scotland, who might have been a, perhaps a better role model for her to, sure, yeah. to pick to. But um, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, she, she said things in the past about um, you know, feminism and things like that 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 were not would not be particularly of a kind of liberal or left leaning um, bent. So it just surprised me that she said it. You yeah. know, and it might be it was said to a Canadian publication, and she may have forgotten that the internet now <laughs> beams these things all around the world in about twenty seconds. So, um, but yeah, it's 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 interesting. I don't know. It's it's difficult. I think if you went through your record collection and kind of threw out all the people who didn't share your own political affiliation, good you lord, you'd, you'd be empty. You'd be in trouble, wouldn't yeah, you? So, um, but uh, yeah, she's certainly. I mean, she's uh, her profile is certainly rising, um, and yeah, the album. You know, you go back to the music would be my advice, I think, and just listen to 100%. that. One hundred percent. One question in from Brian, who texts us on five three one six. Graham, he asks, did George Harrison bring Eric Clapton and Billy Preston into the studio to ease tensions between the band for the recording of the last few albums? Is that true? He asks. Yeah, it's certainly. Well, certainly true. I think with uh, with Eric Clapton, of course, who who is very very close to us on the White Album. Um, there was that sense that the Beatles always kind of were on their best behavior when there was someone else present and they kind of uh, perked up and stopped sniping each other. So that's true. Um, and Billy Preston, of course, they knew from, from Hamburg. They were all quite friendly with Billy. Uh, and he was a very ebullient and very sort of sociable and, and pleasant personality around. I mean, I'm not sure it worked quite so well on that, those sessions because they were quite toxic by that point, let it be. Um, but yeah, I think there, w- there was those attempts to sort of break up break up the atmosphere. And of course on the White Album they were they were recording in different rooms. There wasn't that much band performance anyway and I think it was an attempt to sort of bring everyone together. Um, but he could be quite abra- abrasive in, in that environment sure. too. I mean there's some, there's some great footage and, and uh, recordings of him and Paul McCartney going at it slightly. Um, Something nice to revisit for people as they uh, encounter family Christmases and are reminded of those <laughs> kind of tensions over the next few weeks. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. The Let It Be sessions are, are yeah, very accurate kind of portrayal of a <laughs> Of an edgy Christmas. Yeah, yeah. That, that's Christmas 95, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. uh, Graham Thompson, thanks so much for taking time out to speak to us yet again tonight. The, the book about George is behind the locked door. The book about Kate is under the ivy. Both of them are utterly fantastic. Thanks so much, Graham Thompson. Thank you, Richie. Pleasure.